Hello, and welcome to Phoenix Talks. Here we get academics and cinephiles to chat with us about past, current, and upcoming films. My name is Becky Jones, and here today we have Professor Claire Monk from the Cinema and Television History Department at DeMontfort University to talk to us about Call Me By Your Name, its ties to Merchant Ivory, its place within contemporary queer films, and our reactions to the changes made in adaptation. Hi everybody, I'm Professor Claire Monk at De Montfort University. I'm Professor of Film and Film Culture here and I've been brought in today because I'm, <laughs> yeah, I'm a kind of world expert and fangirl in heritage cinema, the works of James Ivory, who's the screenwriter of the films we're, film we're talking about today, um, and also queer cinema and fans and audiences. Mm-hmm. So I was really looking forward to seeing Call Me By Your Name um, and that's why we're talking about it. Yeah, thank you Claire for having this discussion with us. Um, so kind of initial reactions having seen the film there was a lot of hype around it like the circuit loved it so many people had such huge huge things to say about it and I mean it was good I just wasn't really blown away the way it seemed to expect me to be blown away I think your reaction is quite similar to mine actually. <laughs> I went there expecting to be absolutely swooning I thought my male partner would come out of the cinema gay I was actually <laughs> warning him you know and Actually, I was a bit underwhelmed, and I wonder if I'm underwhelmed because I just had a reaction against the hype, or if Mm. it's actually the film. And I was so surprised that I was a bit underwhelmed that I actually went back to see it twice, Mm -hmm. if that doesn't sound hypocritical. (laughs) Um, We saw it at its London Film Festival premiere. Uh, I think a lot of it, sort of getting ready for this and reading up around it, around the novel and the sort of process it went through, um, the, the, the layers of screenwriting that went into it, even seeing the opening credits and knowing what I knew coming in that it showed James Ivory as the screenwriter um, but then having like read up about how much of his original script was cut exactly there were great changes I think I think I mean Andre Asiman's novel which was hugely acclaimed yes. he's an American academic who wrote this novel that's set in this rather self-conscious <laughs> academic privileged Italian American but also Jewish media where um, you know the family have a summer house in Italy and their teenage son Elio age 17 is the narrator of the story and it's this first person narrative and it had a huge impact apparently um, yeah Call Me By Your Name was optioned for the screen in 2007 almost as soon as it was published mm. and the backstory is that um, James Ivory who's now 89 years old I mean Merchant Ivory Productions were founded in 1961 mm-hmm. um, and he also hasn't directed um, for about a decade. Mm-hmm. Ivory, you know, he's been quite active in the background, mentoring younger directors, encouraging people, screenwriting, getting involved in executive production, planning future productions, this sort of thing. Mm-hmm. So he's been doing quite a bit of stuff in the background in the past decade that yeah. hasn't been directing. And apparently the backstory is that Ivory has some friends in upstate New York, Claverack. Basically, some of their neighbours in Claverack in upstate New York had optioned Asiman's novel Hmm. to film as the producers. And I mean, to me, this is actually quite interesting. I think there's a little bit of a social circle going on there. (laughs) It was optioned by Peter Spears, um, who's a former actor who's also a producer who's gay and Jewish and lives in Claverack. Mm. <laughs> and Howard Rosenman, who's a much more established producer, I think. He goes mm. back decades. So these two had optioned it, and Ivory was involved very, very early on at that point, a decade ago, mm. um, and was quite keen to direct or co-direct it. Um, ended up writing a script. Um, the director who's getting all the praise now, Luca Guadagnino, um, 
I think it was an example of a younger director who Ivory had been, you know, befriended and been mm. mentoring a bit. And he was at Guadagnino was initially on board as a location yeah. consultant because, of course, he's Italian. Yeah, he needs. And arts. he's a quite a, he's an acclaimed Italian and European mm. art cinema director in his own right. Yeah. But younger and you know not maybe makes a film every few years or so, not enormously productive. So I think, I mean, it's interesting because I'm beginning to realise that what Guadagnino says and what Ivory says are not quite identical. I think there are different angles mm. to how this came to be optioned and um, who did what at what point. But essentially Ivory would have liked to direct or co-direct. Right. Couldn't, is also one of the many producers of it. Yes. Um, and as you said, there are a lot of alterations to his script. Mm-hmm. Um, so Ivory initially scripted it. He also talked publicly about having Sheila Berth in it, playing yeah, Oliver, the role that went right, to yeah. Army Hammer, which is certainly controversial among fans of the current film who are quite scathing about this idea. Oh. Um, you know, and it, so, yeah, it ended up with a different cast. I mm-hmm. think probably the financiers, you know, wanted one director rather than two, and mm. so on and so on. Um, and eventually it was shot, I think, in 2015, 2016. Yeah. Um, and there are some quite significant changes from an adaptation point of view that happen yeah. between the novel and the released film as well, which I think we could probably talk about. Yeah, there was, it was something that um, a lot of the sort of discussion was going around, at least in, in where I was looking, about the changes. Um, the novel has a lot of explicit sex scenes between the two that the film very much tames down. You didn't really get what is more common in a lot of queer film is you get just sort of unapologetic sex scenes. I think that was what shocked me about the film actually mm. was I'd read, been reading since January or February, since yeah. Sundance in January this year, that there was this amazing chemistry between the two leads that it was the most, the word sensual was used an awful lot mm. and everybody was giving it five star reviews and raving about it and so I was going in there with that expectation um, and I felt a bit the way you do from what you're saying that that degree of sensuality wasn't for me wasn't there yeah. actually um, and that the way it was filmed I was quite shocked by the various cinematic devices that were used to not show sex yeah. and the second time I saw it I thought no actually this is a bit better than the first time Yes, but it, there's still I couldn't quite put I mean I went to see it twice cause I couldn't mm-hmm. quite put my finger on what the issue was for me other than that I just routinely went in there to expecting it to be more sensual more erotic yeah and you know more obviously sexual you know we've had so many you know we've had so many great strides in queer cinema in recent years including at the very low budget end in Britain with something like Andrew Haig's Weekend where you you know it's it's not it's not prurient and raunchy at all (laughs) but it's pretty frank and you actually see semen on the actor's stomach or the appearance of semen Mm -hmm. you know in one of the scenes after they've made love and things like this and I would now I wasn't expecting that from Call Me By Your Name you know for lots of reasons but I was expecting it I wasn't expecting cropped framing and cameras pulling away out of the window and all that yeah. terribly old-fashioned stuff. The thing is when, you know, of course, James Ivory, I mean, one of the things he's known for, you know, the Motion Tide Reproductions Day, James, mm. is his co-scripted and directed adaptation of E.M. Forster's posthumous gay novel, Morris, mm. which came out 30 years ago. The thing is, in 1987, although we cut in the middle of passionate lovemaking in Morris, and then we cut to the next morning, we have naked guys the next morning, and we do have some full frontal nudity even, and that was 30 years ago. 
and it all feels very convincing. It doesn't, even though Ivory was working on a tiny, tiny budget um, under all sorts of adverse circumstances, mm-hmm. you really believe in the relationship, of both relationships in that film, even mm-hmm. though one of them is physically consummated and the other one isn't. So I was kind of surprised that 30 years later we get this, yeah. and I was, can't really quite put my finger on what the issue is. I don't know what you think... Why it's like that? From what I read, um, Guadagnino had this idea that he had for the story, and he, I don't know if he was worried that the like gratuitous sex or the full frontal nudity would would put off people but he wanted it to be a more gentle love story but to me it, it rather than being gentle just if anything is a really good example of a very awkward romance like in uh, elio in the film if anything is very endearing in how genuinely awkward he is i thought that actually elio <laughs> was much more authentic and i thought tim yes. chalamet was wonderful he was amazing um, yes and i think you'd expect i thought he was there was something quite forthright about him but he's disempowered because he's 17 yeah what I did find more awkward was Army Hammer. Yeah, I a did, bit. He did seem to me to come across much more like a straight actor who was a bit awkward about it mm. and had set some sort of limits on himself. Uh, there were too many scenes where it was a bit like they were horsing about or roughhousing <laughs> rather than it being guys. I mean, we know that guys who are attracted to each other and feel awkward will do that sometimes yeah. as displacement. But it, what I found strange is they were still doing it even once they in that final, particularly in that final trip when they go right. away together for a few days, yeah. they seem to be doing it there. And I was like, well, where's their erotic relationship gone? That was quick. Um, <laughs> I found it a bit weird. And there were, I think there are scenes that are meant to be highly charged, mm. like the shoulder massage scene and the stuff with the feet. You know, oh, I think those things are meant to be incredibly highly charged, but somehow it didn't quite come across. Mm. And I think there's, a, I think perhaps because of American puritanism and prurience, Could be, yeah. there's a worry. I wonder how much it's an expedient decision that it's a bit tame because of Oscars mm. and because Sony Picture Classics. Right. I wondered how much it's a directorial, authorial vision thing, and how much yeah. it's. Um, a self-interested thing that oh. is a bit like that. I mean, we don't. Yeah. It doesn't have to be explicit. No, it, it does have to have a charge there. And Guadagnino seems to be talking about making sequels, pretty much turning it into a franchise, doesn't he? There's all oh, sorts. I mean, it's astonishing. It sounds like he's going to spin it out and out and out, mm. or certainly he's teasing about spinning it out and out and out. Mm. Except then he said in one interview that the next episode is going to be about Elio and the girlfriend. And at this point, you think, please, what is going on here? That's yeah. Um, that because was... in the novel, there is a coda sixteen years later, yeah. and then another coda twenty years later, and that's completely cropped out of the film. Yes. So yeah. either it's cropped out because he wants to make sequels, but it does give mm. the effect of this being a you know a very intense, passionate love story that tragically parts and will be over at the end of the summer. Yeah, just a summer love. And yeah. It, yeah, that's absolutely how it comes across because of that omission of the coda yeah. from this particular film. And I think for people who love Call Me By Your Name, they absolutely love the closing sequence where Elio just cries over the entire very slow, very long credits. But at that point, I personally cracked and thought, I'm not sitting through this. It's just awful. Yeah, poor kid, give him a hug. Of course, for anyone who cares about queer representation and happy endings and so on, that's not a happy ending. And it, it does make it very possible to sort of bracket their relationship mm. as, as you said, summer love, a phase. Um, it's not quite clear. Yeah. I, I, I felt I wanted to know a bit more about Oliver's repression and, mm. dip, you know, his background. We hear a little bit you of get it. kernels, yeah. We hear a little bit of it in that phone conversation, right. but it's very quick, it's very mumbled, mm. it's over very fast. Um, 
so it's never clear, I think, in the earlier film how much he's avoiding Elio because he's younger or how much he's, it's his own internal yeah. repression and he's actually engaged to a woman and we don't know that yet. Sorry, spoilers. I mean, the fact that Elio is a prodigy, I think, yes. is interesting and it's important because Very, if yeah. he wasn't precocious, we wouldn't accept the affair so mm. easily mm-hmm. or the relationship so easily. But I agree, the level of privilege and the way it was presented as natural, I mean, just speaking personally as a professor, the fact that the world now thinks that academics live that lifestyle is maybe not to bang my head. And we, but I mean, not I mean yeah, going back to Ivory, whatever people think of Merchant Ivory's, you know, upper middle class costume dramas, go back and watch them because there is not that degree of lack of conflict. Mm. You've got quite snarky, salty... Yes. Yeah. Servants in the ivory films. The classes. Trust there. me, they don't have that. People don't have <laughs> servants even a hundred years ago. Yeah. You know, it's and it, it, I, I mean, I think there's a lot. Of, one of the changes is the novel is set in southern Italy. Yes, and where it's at the seaside. It's a mm. seafront house. Um, and the Perlmans have the best seafront house, so everyone goes and hangs out there because yeah. there's the beach or something. And that like creates it. this like Bloomsbury group space that they've sort of cultivated. With yes, that's artists. it. There's all these inter- intellectuals who come round for the much. summer. Who Oliver is very popular within the novel. We didn't really see much of that no. in the film. We have these rather annoying friends. Who Th- come they come out. by, but it wasn't made yeah. clear that they were creating that circle of sort of art and and thought and philosophy. But yeah, again, in the film, it's very difficult to create that sense of intellectual environment. And I think James Ivory made the point when he was scripting it that he wasn't sure what the father's academic discipline was in the novel. So he decided he was an archaeologist. <laughs> yeah. Well, Oliver's yeah. supposed to be there to revise and yeah. for you know further his PhD which and is help on out the Her- Heraclitus. Yes. So we know what his PhD is on, and is vaguely mentioned in mm-hmm. the film. But there's a sort of confusion, I think, because the subject of his PhD is not the same as the subject of Professor Perlman's archaeological yeah. stuff, which <laughs> seems to be partly there to provide a kind of homoerotic, high cultural context yeah. to what's going on. There are, cert- you know, there are certain shots that invite us to compare the statues in the sh- slides or the the ancient fragments yes. they pick up when they go on mm-hmm. the trip to the island. We're invited to compare those in one shot with Elio himself lying on a sofa and in another mm-hmm. shot with Oliver. Um, I was surprised the film didn't do more of that, actually, but I think we're supposed to think that... Um, yeah, you know these guys are somehow perfect, like these Greek the, yeah, these sort of, yeah. yeah, it's I, I just found it slightly inadequate from that point of view, yeah. and because of the change, I mean, I think the change in the location is partly to do with budget. Yeah, um, Guadagnino lives in Lombardy. Yeah, I think it does make a difference that it's in northern Italy and Lombardy, partly because it means their final trip is to the local one of the local towns, not to Rome. Yeah, and I mean. Um, a friend of mine who's a gay literature academic in America, hi Nico, um, <laughs> pointed out to me that, I mean, f- pointed out one thing that, you know, the trip to Rome has all sorts of gay culture and literary connotations and reference points in the book, mm. including being where, you know, various gay directors made their films, various gay writers lived there and mm. so on. That's lost because they just go to one of the local towns in Lombardy. Yeah. We don't really get that in the film. I think we don't really understand that in the film. And the other thing is that it's able to be the way it is because it's set before the AIDS crisis. Um, yeah. The novel is the 80s, but rather non-specific. I think the specific 1983 mm. setting is you know, particular to the film, as That's far true. as I can remember. Um, so, yeah, you've got certain things that get lost, I think, by moving it to northern Italy. Mm. 
it's almost a missed opportunity because of that time frame. Yeah, it is slightly strange because it's both set in 1983 before the AIDS crisis and a very recent novel of you know novel of the past decade. Yeah. So there's a lot of opportunity there. Exactly. Or it the always explicit. gets treated as a political issue. Which exactly. Is something very very absent from both the novel and the film. Very much. So. no suggestion, as you said, because the family are so liberal Privileged. and so supportive yeah. and so encouraging. Um, that that isn't really part of the mix. Yeah. I also think the treatment of the other, you know, female character Kiara, yes. I thought was rather misogynist. We're invited to laugh at her for going the after all of it, and we met. She somehow meant to have a, you know, she's got a bigger bottom than Marcia. Mm. She's got slightly, you know, and she's she's talked about as oh she's got a when Elio's kind of goading all of her, like talking about her. Oh she's she looks really sexy now. Aren't you lucky that she's all over you? And Oliver kind of being like, mm, yeah, I guess. And again, I guess, again, another counterpart of part of the roughhousing is the really silly disco dancing. Oh, my goodness. Which, yes. I mean, it turns up again at the end when they're on their trip. <laughs> yeah. And I just wish I just wish they'd had more 80s music rather than, or more 80s indie music, rather than just this split between Love My Way and the disco. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, the best part was really Elio and his classical music. Yes. That... that <laughs> came across fine that was authentic Um, you know I didn't have a problem with that (laughs) I thought there were an awful lot of what you might call slightly facile high cultural reference points Mm -hmm. the title sequence where you have all the bits of statuary with the credits over them I I was expecting to have different statues referencing different characters but they didn't seem to bother Mm. to do that and again if you compare that with something like a Merchant Ivory title sequence their title sequences are always incredibly thoughtfully designed mm. in terms of matching image with character and gotcha. image you know image with credit and this sort of thing yeah um so it was slightly disappointing again there's also <laughs> a question about the position of all the women i think if you know mm. if the revelation we get from the dad at the end yes. is what i think it is then Which... what is the position of his incredibly chic wife i was really a, a bit upset about that because you it, weren't the only one the second were... time i saw it there were women in the toilets at the cinema yeah. um at the rio in dalston having discussions about well, about the position of Oliver's wife, about the position of the girlfriend, just generally, women in the film generally. Actually. Yeah, they were more fringe. And the fact that this mother it was presented in such an amazing way, she was so, she seemed very talented, very intelligent, multilingual, like all of this stuff made her just seem like this amazing woman. That moment when she reads to them from German on the couch was such a beautiful scene that for him to say to Elio almost that like, I don't actually love your mother the way that I would like to, really surprised me. That well, yeah, she was absolutely gorgeous. Because the other thing that annoyed me good... was that um, it was it was presented as natural that he's a professor, but she apparently doesn't have any kind of occupation, even though she was clearly really, really bright. I just assumed she was somehow also a professor, even though we just never see her doing anything. I thought she just hung out being rich, making Nokia or whatever yeah. it was. She just didn't seem to have. I mean, maybe yeah. that's a. It's because we never or see her. Italian thing. Yeah. I don't know, but it, again, when you compare it with Bonino's previous films. And you go from that to this, it's completely natural that we don't know what the mom does. Yeah. She's, oh, just, it just annoyed me. A she's bit. just there to be loving and supportive, but we never really. And very, very glamorous. And very. Incredibly glamorous. But, but we, yeah, we don't really get to know really much any of the women. I think if we'd been more absorbed in the male erotic centered side, yeah. we wouldn't be having this conversation. Possibly, about yeah. And it's just possible to have interesting women on the sidelines, but it, I just wanted to. Right. <laughs> I just wanted to, like. Does yeah. she? Is she a professor too? Is we didn't she, get any sense of it. Was, really. yeah, it was a shame because she seemed very capable and it, it's another sort of missed opportunity that this, this film seems to have a lot of. 
And yeah. there was that weird thing as well, the weird episode where the gay couple come to visit and yes. it actually kicks in and becomes really homophobic. Yeah. Or the Elio is presented as really homophobic. Sonny and Cher and all of that. You know, this idea, oh, I'm not wearing this patterned shirt that the gay couple gave me as a present. Mm. Even though he's either gay or bisexual himself yeah. and absolutely obsessed with Oliver. Yeah. So there's this seems to be this idea about the wrong and the right type of gayness or the the too visible yeah. or too camp. The quote-unquote embarrassing type yeah. of gayness being offered and then rejected, which I thought was also a bit of a shame. And perhaps the father doesn't talk about his unconfessed gay tendency because he doesn't want to be associated with this, these men with their bow ties yeah, and their floral shirts. They're lightly coloured suits. Yeah, yeah. I it just was... thought it was it was weird that episode. And one of those is one of those is a cameo for the novel author as well. Oh, was it? Yeah, it's Asiman. That's mm. his kind of like moment in the sun. Gotcha. He gets to turn up as one of the gay couple. Yeah. So there's a lot of that kind of thing where it's sort of had weird double standards and sort of missed opportunities. Where I think had it just done that little bit more possibly it could be a lack of missing script that ivory had intended that because they took bits out things got lost i don't quite know what the difference is between ivory's script and what we get yeah and that'd be very interesting yeah um, exactly if lucky might have archived it somewhere Maybe. i hope so that's true and and for all of its faults, i did feel that call me, call me by your name did at least with elio's character it did sort of show that that awkwardness, that teen awkwardness, even though he was as, as prodigy as he was, in a way that a lot of shows kind of fail. They always make him a bit more mature or they, they cast older actors and it doesn't quite work. But I felt like Elio's character, for all of his faults and failings, was still very much what I think carried the film in a way that other, other aspects didn't. I really agree. I mean, I think he's a very real teenager mm. to the extent of being irritating. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, he's irritating, but you totally get where he's coming from. Exactly. But at the same time, he's very bold because he's not, you know, he's not deluded about his feelings exactly. rather. It's and, and more it, that it's difficult for him to act on because he's 17. Yeah. And, and once they confirm it, I feel like that unapologetic attitude, that moment where they're like, why did we wait so long? And uh, that, that sort of honest discussion they had. There were definitely moments in it that I feel were are good that we're getting these in cinema that they're having these discussions that they're showing it's not always like you know you don't always know it's sometimes it's problematic or sometimes you have to be very careful in figuring out if someone is also like you in the way that Oliver was trying to test the waters and that whole thing of first love where you know you're falling in love with a person but yeah. you don't really know how they feel exactly. they might be quite shy exactly. you don't you know so you don't play all your cards yeah. and he plays as many cards as he can really Yeah. but in a really interior teenage sort of way yeah. where Oliver is meant to spot what's <laughs> which obviously he's he's not a teenager anymore so he doesn't have, and that misunderstanding of, of signals I feel that in that in that respect I feel it was quite I thought honest. that aspect was very that true. was very and I good. do I do like yeah. before I do like that yeah. performance I do think it's very, yeah he's very very good um on that note uh we're gonna have to to end it thank you very much for coming and talking with us uh hopefully we'll get you in again soon yeah I hope so a big thanks to Claire for speaking to me today. Call Me By Your Name will be at Phoenix Cinema Lester from Friday the 10th of November through Thursday the 23rd and stars Army Hammer, Timothy Claremont, and Michael Salper, directed by Luca Guadagnino. Our thanks to co-producer Peter Samkuti and song credit to Badly Stuffed Animals for their song Vanilla Ice Cream. Hope you tune in next time for more talks on films, filmmaking, and the events happening around Phoenix Cinema Lester. Until then, happy watching.